Welcome to another podcast from Fire Church Ministries. We hope you enjoy this message by special guest Maddie Montgomery. We got a text from Daniel this morning. He said, uh, "He said, man, we're, we're so honored to have you." He's in the way he explained this. He said, "This is our church that we built. This is the house God gave us." And um, and so I, I want you to understand, those of you that come to this church, I have the tremendous honor to travel all around the world and to preach at all different kinds of churches. Um, some are massive, some are small, some are conservative, some are really wild and, and charismatic. And, um, and I want to tell you that, that what you have here is one of the best churches on planet Earth. The, the leadership, the vision that you have, the anointing that rests on this house, the favor of God that rests on this house is generational. It's it's really tremendous, and uh, and and you know one of the the amazing things that actually I learned from from John Bevere of all people um, is that uh, is that in Scripture there's there's a word that that um, is translated into English as the word honor, and uh, and it means to to esteem something or to value something, to give something high regard, to hold it in high regard, and he said. Uh, he said, to help clear this up for you, um, the opposite, the, the word in, in, that is, is translated in Scripture as honor, the opposite of that word is not hatred. It's not dishonor. It's not disrespect. In fact, the word that is the, uh, the, the, the opposite, um, the antonym of the, word, uh, uh, of the word that's translated in Scripture as, as honor means to treat as common. And... Uh, and so I, I, I want you to understand that if, if, uh, if you truly honor this house, you've got to get this, that it's not common. And the danger, the danger, I think, is for us to say, well, I don't speak against my pastors, and I don't make fun of the people at my church, and I don't gossip, and I'm not actively trying to tear down what God is doing here. So, yeah, I guess I honor it. I guess I honor my leaders. I guess I honor my church. But, but the truth is that, that, that uh, the, the opposite of honor is not hatred. It's to treat as common. And we, we run this risk. We, we, we toe the, a, a dangerous line when we begin to take for granted the gift of fellowship community that God has given us. And so I, I guess I want to start today by giving those of you that attend this church a warning um, that... Uh, that, that, that Dan and Chelsea, the leaders that God has put in your life, are put there for a reason. They're anointed for the task of, of t- protecting your soul, of defending your family, your heart, your mind, of, of guiding you in your pursuit of God. And to treat that like, it, like, like people like that or a dime a dozen is, is a dire mistake. Huh. Okay. So anyway, just love you, Chelsea. <laughs> I'm going to drink some water. You guys feeling good this morning? Good. So um, I'm going to teach a little bit. Is that okay? How many of you were not at the conference this weekend? Oh, y'all missed out. It was awesome. We had, it was just bananas. We had a, a great time, man. It was so cool. Um. So I, 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 um, I'm going to teach a, a bit this morning, and I'll do my best not to assume that you understand what I taught on at the conference, because a lot of you weren't there. Um, 
but, uh, uh, but, but for those of you that were at the conference, let's just, let's roll, okay? Last night was amazing. God showed up and just transformed lives, set people free. Last night we, we received the word of the Lord that, um, that he was going to be commissioning deliverers, people like Moses that would be willing to confront the king and to lead captives out of captivity, um, and that he was going to, uh, to send them like arrows into the heart of the dragon in this nation. And, um, and so this morning, I, I, I really felt to, to speak about something that Holy Spirit really began unraveling for me a, a few months ago. And, um, and it's based on this question, how can God use a sinner like me? How can God use somebody like you that is still dealing with fear or insecurity or indifference or apathy? Or maybe you're dealing with your own struggles. Maybe you're trying to come out of your own sin cycle or your own habit. How is it possible that God could ever use me when I'm still so in process? I've not yet arrived. And this is something that, that, that we deal with everywhere I go. This is something I face everywhere I go because the enemy will always try to take, if, if you give the enemy one day, he'll, he'll always try to take a second. And let me explain it like this. He'll come to you with temptation over and over and over and over again. And no matter how long you resist it, if he gets one moment of your time, if he gets one day of your time with temptation, he'll try to take the next day of your time with shame. Now let me explain it like this. If, if, uh, if you're a, a, a great, mighty man or woman of God and you resist temptation and you've got great accountability and, and, and you're focused on the things of God and then maybe after a few years of, of dealing with this temptation, you, you are, are tired and you're worn down and maybe you've been separated from fellowship and, and you have let some things slip and as a result you fall into temptation. Maybe you look at pornography again. Maybe you have an affair. Maybe something happens in your life that is, is destructive or hurtful. Something that you swore you would never do again. Something that you never imagined that you'd go back into. And, and the same enemy that said, it's not that big a deal. Why don't you just give it a taste? Why don't you give it a try? You have needs too, just like everybody else. The enemy comes at you with these lies and tries to diminish the significance of your sin until you succumb to that lie. And then his entire tactic changes. And he says, how could you have made such a colossal mistake? You're so stupid. How could you have done that? You knew better, and you've, taught, you've spoken out against this exact sin, and yet here you are. And so how do we as, as believers deal with the mistakes that we've made, the, time that temptation, the times that temptation has gotten the best of us in a way that can, that can uh, position us to be free from shame and free from guilt and free from condemnation, to be able to walk... Like, like the sons and daughters of God that we really are. And so, um, so I want to just, I want to talk about two men and how they dealt with their failure. And those two men are named uh, Adam and David. And, um, and I want to kind of just draw some things out of their stories, if that's okay. I want to start in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and now this may be a story that many of you are really familiar with, but... Um, God, God likes to take me back to the stories I read a million times when I was a kid and say, yeah, you might have read it a million times, but you didn't get it. <laughs> and, uh, and then show me things about these stories that I never knew before, never even could have imagined. And so let me, uh, let, let's do that with, um, 
in Genesis chapter 3. Now, now I, I assume that many of you are probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the, 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 these, these created people that God created and put in his garden in this new world that he formed. And, um, uh, and, and they're living in fellowship with each other. And, and he says, you can have dominion over everything. You can do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, of that tree, the, of the fruit of that tree, you shall not eat. Um, and, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so um, he essentially says there's only one rule. Do whatever you want. Have fun. Enjoy this land. Take care of this land. I give you responsibility and dominion over it. Um, but the one line that you will not cross is that you will not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And... Um, and so it seems fair enough, right? Seems easy, but then of course, right? What do they do? Um, <laughs> and so they're, they're living in this garden, and this is when the story picks up. Genesis three. I'll start in verse one. It says, "Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden?' And the woman said to the serpent, We we may eat uh, eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so then the woman starts to look at the tree, and she says, You know what? This tree does seem good. And I think that it could maybe make me wise, and wisdom is a good thing, right? And so she takes the fruit from this tree, and she eats it, and she gives it to her husband, who the Bible says was with her, and he eats it too. And, um, and, and then for the first time in history, sin entered into the world. And it's still, it's still a, a burden that, that humankind is bearing. And, uh, and, and so I, I want to point something out to you, because the enemy uses the same tactics over and over again. And so we can learn something from the way he approaches Eve about the way he, he approaches us. Uh, he says this. He shows up and he says, you will not surely die if you eat this. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, what? Like God. Now the problem with this lies in, in uh, two chapters Earlier in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it, it reads like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image to be like us. So in Genesis 1, God says, let's make man to be like us. And then the enemy shows up and says, you're not like God. You have to do this to become like God. He comes and he challenges the, the God-given identity that Eve was already walking in. He comes and he says, I know that that's what God said about you, but you have to do some more stuff to prove it. You have to do some more stuff to become who God already says you are. And that is the lie that most of the church is operating in. We, I have to be stronger. I have to walk out of more sin. I have to be able to, 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 to quote more Bible verses. I have to graduate from Bible college. I have to get married and, 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 and walk in purity for 10 years before I can really be a powerful man of God. But what if God already says you are a powerful man? It's the same, tactic, the same tactic the enemy uses against Jesus. Jesus is baptized. 
heaven opens and, and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he's immediately led out into the wilderness by the Spirit and, he's, and he, he fasts for 40 days and then when he's hungry, the enemy comes, Satan comes, and the first thing he says is, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. It's the same temptation. God says, this is my beloved son. And then the enemy shows up. The next conversation he has is with the enemy where he shows up and says, if you really are the son of God, prove it. You still have some stuff to do to become the son of God, to establish your sonship. Can I tell you something really incredible? The last words of Jesus before he died on the cross were like this. It is finished. And he meant it. He doesn't say it's about to be finished. Someday, maybe sometime down the road, it'll eventually be finished. I'm just getting started, and, uh, and I promise we're going to finish this at one point. He hangs on the cross, and he declares over your sin, over your guilt, over your dirt, over your brokenness and weakness, it is finished once and for all. He that knew no sin became sin. When I look at the broken, twisted uh, wretch of a man on the cross, I can't help but think that was my sin hanging there, and that it was my sin that was put in the ground so that I don't have to walk in guilt anymore. Amen. Do you want to know how you can overcome the fear of man? Believe that Jesus really paid your price. Because I'm not guilty. Because people might think I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. And people might think I'm weird, but I'm not weird. And people might think I'm lying, but I'm not lying. And people might think I'm compensating for the mistakes of my past, but I'm not compensating for the mistakes of my past. I'm just a free man. I just know how good it feels to have my debt paid. Man, a, a great man of God once said that uh, evangelism is just one beggar telling another where he found bread. Hallelujah. So then the story goes on, right? So the, the woman sees that the, the tree is good for food and that it's pleasant to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. And she, she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave it to her husband who's with her and he ate. And then the Bible says their, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They realized that they were exposed. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they, they made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of, of God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? So he said, I, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Now, a few months ago, I was standing in, in a worship service, and God spoke to me very, very clearly. And he said, I want you to teach about the two questions I asked Adam in the garden. And, and, and in that statement, I think there's something really powerful in, in this passage, that, that Adam and, and Eve are hiding among the trees in the garden, and God begins to walk through the garden, and he asks them, where are you? Like he didn't know. He's God. Right? Now, I, I think it's a, a, an amazing, like, God's not good at hide and seek. He's God. Like, he definitely knew what had happened, and he definitely knew where Adam and Eve were, but he still asked them, where are you? And I think that there is uh, something to be learned from this because that's a positional question because the place that Adam used to be was in communion with God. 
The place that Adam used to be was in intimacy with God. The place that Adam used to be was in friendship with God, but something changed in that moment and his position was affected. That it changed where he was. The Bible says that we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Do you want to know where you are? It's, it's, it's right next to the king. But so often we think that, well, I'm actually in sin or I'm actually in fear or I'm actually in compromise. And we believe these lies. And as we believe these lies, we affect our position. The question that the father asks is a positional question. It's a dimensional question because Adam was at one point in a place of connectedness, intimacy, Closeness, friendship with God, cooperation with God. But his position changed. And, and when God came, he wasn't asking him, where are you? Like, why are you hiding behind this tree? He asked him, where are you? Like, why aren't we still friends? Why aren't you still in a position of intimacy with me? And then Adam, he hears the question and he, his mind starts racing and he does what we do. and He tries to tries to reason with God. He tries to explain to God, here's what's going on. It all makes perfect sense. Nothing to worry about here. He, he, he comes out and, and he, says, uh, he says, oh, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. And now the evidence of what Adam and Eve had done is on full display. Because let me explain it like this. The, the tree that they ate from, it wasn't an apple tree. It was, it was specifically called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here's the dangerous thing about knowing good and evil. It's that when you know good and evil, you become responsible to choose good every time. And so Adam and Eve, they'd been living off of the word of God. They'd been living off the instructions of God. They'd been living off of intimacy and fellowship and friendship with God. Not based on rules and regulations and, and, and an, an impossible list of standards or moral, moral standards that they have to abide by. They were living off of presence. They were living off of personal relationship and intimacy with God. But then when their eyes were opened and they suddenly knew the standard of God, their, their eyes were opened to be able to know the difference between good and evil, they realized that they were walking in evil, that they were naked, they were exposed. And so, so then Adam hears God and he realizes, oh, no, no, no I've, I've been exposed. My sin has been exposed. And he goes to hide himself. And then he comes out and he says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And I love this. This, to me, shows the character of God in such a profound and incredible way that God, he doesn't say this, Adam, how could you? I gave you one commandment and you betrayed me. I drew one line in the sand and you had to cross it. How could you have been so rebellious? How could you have been so stupid? And he would have been absolutely justified to speak to him like that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, shoot, Adam, I knew that you were going to do this. I, I should have done a better job of guarding that tree. I should have hid it from you guys. I can't believe I trusted you like this. He doesn't say, Adam, depart from me. You don't deserve my presence anymore. All of these things would have been justified, but like a loving father, he, he, like, he stoops down. And his first question is not, how could you? How dare you? It's this, who told you you were naked? 
Because the heart of God is so concerned with the voice we're listening to that when we fail miserably, that is the question that sits at the top of his list. Who told you? What voice were you listening to? Where did you get that identity that, that you've put on yourself? Because I called you beloved. Because I called you friend, and now you're calling yourself naked. Now, let me make this really practical, okay? I know this may all sound really ancient and spiritual, so let's make it really practical, right? Now, imagine there's a boy, and uh, as he grows up, maybe he doesn't have a lot of luck with the girls, and he just doesn't fit in with the rest of the guys, and things are a little bit weird. And, and so he's, his awkwardness turns into like a sexual interest in the boys that are around him in, in school. And then he, he finds out on the internet that that's called being gay. And, uh, and so he starts to think, well, I think, I think I'm gay. And that, that explains why I'm so different and why I don't act like the other guys or think like the other guys. And, uh, and, and so... Uh, that must be what it is with me. But he keeps it a secret because his mom or his dad, you know, they, they go to church and they're Christians and they talk about how you can't be Christian and gay. And they talk about how these gay people are trying to affect the government and the laws and they don't like it, right? They're upset about it. So he keeps it a secret. He keeps it quiet because he doesn't want he doesn't want to start a, a problem. And then, uh, and then eventually when he gets old enough, he moves out of the house and and, and maybe he goes to university, and, and there he begins a, uh, his first homosexual relationship with another gay guy that he, he met in, in his school. And, and, uh, and, and it's, he feels loved, and he feels accepted. For the first time in his life, he feels like he found a place to fit, and, and, and it satisfies something inside of him. And, and so he, uh, he, he continues on in this relationship, and in relationship after relationship, and then he, he grows up a bit more, and this is just his identity now. He's a gay man, and that's how he lives his life. And He's got a job and an apartment, and he's living his life as a gay man, and then maybe one day he's walking down the street, and he, he hears these Christians out on the street corner singing this old song, Amazing Grace, that he remembered his mom singing when he was a little boy. And he remembers the presence of God that he felt in church as a kid. And he remembers that he really believed that God loved him. Now he's far away from God and he's living in, in sin and he's living a, a, as an atheist and, um, and, and just denying that the power, the love of God. But, but he hears this song and he remembers something from when he was a boy. And so he goes home, back into his, his, his home and he closes the door to his bedroom and he sits there and he talks to God for the first time in decades. And he says, he says God, I... When I was a boy, I, I thought that I heard you had a plan for my life, and, and I thought that, that, that I heard that you loved me, and, and I, I thought I remembered hearing that you cared about me and that you would fight for me, but, 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 but now I'm, I'm, I'm gay, and, 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 and I hear from all these people that you can't accept me because of the way that I am, and, and, and I hear from all these people that you can't love me because of the way that I am, and I, do, I just don't know what's true. And, and suddenly as he's pouring his heart out to God, the presence, the holy presence of the Father fills his room. And God doesn't come and quote a bunch of scriptures to him. And God doesn't come and, and, and drop the hammer on him and, 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 and destroy everything about him. What God does is he bends down like a loving father. And he says, son, who told you you were gay? Think about this. We've got to get to a place where we understand that God's main concern is, is, is this. What voice are you listening to? 
Are you getting your identity from the culture? Are you getting your identity even from, from, from your friends in the church? Are you getting your identity from your family members? Or are you being identified by fallible people? Or are you consistently choosing to believe that what God says about you is the truth? How dangerous is it for us to identify ourselves by our sin? And now maybe that's not your issue. Maybe, maybe you say it's so hard for me to walk in, in, uh, uh, in, in boldness because I deal with depression, because I'm, I'm depressed. And I think that God would come and say, well, who told you you're depressed? Oh, well, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still a, a, a drug addict, right? We have, we have Alcoholics Anonymous, and they make you come in and stand up and say, hi, my name's Maddie, and I'm an alcoholic. Who told you you're an alcoholic? Who told you you're a drug addict? We have to ask ourselves this question about everything in our lives, about our job and about our families and about our, our agendas and about our dreams and our hopes and our, our aspirations, the goals that we set for ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, who told you? Because God has to be your supply. Or you're going to waste yourself on worthless things. And I, I can't help but think about what a loving father he is. That he wouldn't just come and destroy you. He wouldn't just come and say, get away from me. How could you? How dare you? What an insult to my holiness that you would, uh, that you would betray me by ignoring the instruction of the command that I gave you. No, he just says, who told you? Whose voice were you listening to? Was it yours? Was it the voice of fear? The voice of indifference? Was it the voice of religion? Because my voice will call you to a higher standard. My voice will not accommodate your fear. My voice will not accommodate your confusion. My voice will not accommodate your desire to fit in with a fallen world. So then, so we see Adam, right? He falls into sin, falls into rebellion, and then he runs and hides from God. And as a result, the whole earth is cursed for his sake. God says, that, says Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. The, the actual land on which we live was cursed because Adam, after falling into sin, ran away from God. But, listen, there's another strategy, there's another option, and I want to share that with you. Because you don't have to be like Adam. You don't have to be a person that if you make a mistake, if you miss the mark, if you fall short one time, you have to run away from God because he's out to get you because he is merciful. Hallelujah. He is full of mercy and loving kindness. He is so patient and long-suffering. Hallelujah. So, so the story of, of David goes like this. David, as a kid, a prophet shows up to his house and anoints him as king of Israel and then leaves. <laughs> and I can't help but think that that was, that was weird. Like, okay, I'm a shepherd and I'm taking care of my dad's sheep. And then he calls me inside and this prophet anoints me and says, you will be king of Israel. And then the prophet leaves and dad goes, 
All right, well, back out to the sheep, I guess. What excitement. <laughs> Such excitement for a minute and then just back to normal. <laughs> but I can't help but think that every day as he's taking care of these sheep, now he's not taking care of the sheep as a shepherd. He's taking care of the sheep as a king that just takes care of sheep right now. <laughs> like what if you went into work, not as an accountant, but as a king that just did accountant's work right now? What if you did children's ministry, not as somebody that does children's ministry, but as a king that takes care of the kids? What if you parked cars at church or washed the toilets or vacuumed the carpets or stacked up the chairs? Not as somebody that washes toilets or vacuums carpets, but as a king that just washes toilets and vacuums carpets because it needs to be done. What needs to happen is that we need to become a people that, that get our identity from the word of God and not from the job that we do. We have to understand who he says we are. He's made us to be kings and priests. And anything less is an insult to the blood of Jesus that qualified us to be kings and priests. People ask me all the time on planes. I get upgraded because I fly so much. And, and so I sit next to like CEOs and, and athletes and musicians and like crazy influential people. And they'll always look at me in sweatpants with a neck tattoo and, and be like, who are you? Uh, well, I'm King Maddie. Nice to meet you, man. <laughs> Sometimes I write books and talk to people, but really I'm, I'm a king that just writes books and talks to people because that's what needs to be done right now. <laughs> so, um, so David stays faithful. You know the story. Eventually, as he gets a little bit older, there's a giant that needs to get killed, and he handles business. And then people start to sing songs about him, and they think he's amazing. He's still not the king. He goes back to the, to the fields again. And then he eventually gets called into the palace to play music for the king, for Saul. And Saul goes crazy, and he tries to kill David. And so David has to run away for a long time. And then eventually Saul kills himself, and David gets anointed king officially. And, um, and then David, he's the king. And one day, when he's supposed to be off at war, he sends somebody else. And, uh, and he's sitting on his rooftop, and he sees this beautiful woman on her rooftop next door bathing, Bathsheba. And he says, go get her and bring her to me. And he gets her pregnant. Um, and her husband is off in this war that David was supposed to be at. And to cover up his shame with the fact that he was now an adulterer, in fact, many scholars believe he was a rapist, that, that he didn't just seduce this woman with his charm and good looks, but he just took her whether she wanted it or not. So now as a, as, a, as a rapist and an adulterer and a liar and a thief, he has to cover this up and he becomes a murderer too. And he, has, he uses his authority to send her husband to the front lines of the battle where the fighting is most intense and he dies, of course. Um, and so he takes this woman. And, um, and then eventually the prophet arrives at his doorstep and he calls him to deal with God about his sin, the depth of his depravity. And just like Adam, David suddenly is exposed. His eyes are open and he realizes that he's naked. He's exposed before God. He's not hiding anything. God saw it all. He is responsible for the action that he's taken, for the sin, uh, the, the destruction that he's brought on his life and the lives of many other people around him. And now he had a choice. He could have done 
what Adam did, and he could have run away and tried to make himself look good. That's what Saul did when he fell into sin. I won't talk about that now. I can teach you about it later if you're curious. But, um, but David has, has a choice. He could run away and try to cover himself and make himself look good, but he doesn't do this. He falls on his face, tears his clothes, cries out to God and says, Father, forgive me. And he does, he, this is what he writes. He writes this song, and, and it's in Psalm, uh, it's Psalm 51. And he, he begins to write this song out of his heart of repentance, contrition over the mistakes that he's made, the sin that he's, he's accommodated and allowed into his life. And it's actually described in my Bible. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet uh, came to him after he, had, uh, after he had taken Bathsheba. So David is now an adulterer, possibly a rapist, a thief, a liar, and a murderer. And he just begins to write. He says this. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And I love, I love that, that he says, God, don't forgive me because I deserve it. He says, forgive me because you are merciful. He says, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. Don't do it because I'm good. Do it because you're good. You need to understand this. God doesn't love you because you are qualified or because you are impressive or because you are so tremendously lovable. He loves you because he overflows with mercy, because he overflows with love, because he overflows with kindness. And so, so because his love for you is not predicated upon your performance, your performance cannot disqualify you from the love of God. People say, well, man, I, I've made so many mistakes. I, I just don't see how God can still love me. And then I get the good news of saying, well, his love for you is not based on you at all. That's such one of the coolest things I've heard. Ben tells the story uh, often of, of how in, in Germany, when he goes to, to people on the street and he says, Jesus Liebtick, he says in, in German, Jesus loves you. Um, that the question they ask most often, more often than anything else, is how, or sorry, is why. They don't ask who is Jesus or uh, where I live. Everybody knows, everybody knows that. And so they say, oh, yeah, cool, man, thanks. Jesus loves you too. Um, but in Germany, they ask why. Why would Jesus love me? What a tremendous opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Because they understand that they are fully unqualified. But the, the best news of the gospel is that it is not about how qualified you are. It's about how merciful he is. And so then David, as he's continuing to cry out to God, he says this. And this is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Because I understand what it feels like to be a failure. I understand what it feels like to, to be completely unqualified for what God is doing through my life. I understand that, trust me. Last, shoot, last year at, at uh, the Empowered Conference, Frank Clancy introduced, introduced me to the crowd. And now, um, if you, I don't know if Frank is here, but if, if you don't know Frank, he is unbelievable. This incredible, faithful man of God who loves people in, in such a tremendous way that I hope to someday learn to love people like Frank does. And he stood on stage and honored me. And, and, and I walked up on stage and started my message by just sobbing for 10 minutes. It was totally awkward for everybody. 
because I, I was just suddenly super aware of just how unqualified I am to hold these platforms. Like how unqualified I am to stand even next to a man like Frank Clancy or to stand next to a man like John Bevere or, or Ben Fitzgerald or Daniel Hagen. These guys are incredible, amazing men of God. And, and I am so aware of my own shortcomings. You know, I remember one of my favorite quotes is, um, is from a man named uh, Charles Spurgeon. And he, he wrote this. He said, my critics err because they do not know the real me. I'm much worse than they know. <laughs> so David, so <laughs> I love that so much. So David writes this. He writes, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Uh, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then, listen to this, then I will teach sinners, uh, transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now we have spent this entire weekend at this conference trying to provoke the body of Christ to do something to convert sinners to God's way. Do you want to know David's strategy? What was it that David needed before he could preach to sinners? And it was this, created me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Listen, Adam, when he was exposed for his sinfulness, ran away from God. He covered himself and he hid and he ran away from the presence of God that he heard in the garden that day. But David, when he was exposed, cries out to God and said, no matter what happens, I'll lose my authority, I'll lose my kingdom, I'll lose my influence, I'll lose my health, I'll lose my reputation, I'll lose my job, I'll lose my money, I'll lose it all. But, but no matter what, please God, whatever happens, do not take your presence from me. Do not take your spirit from me. I can live losing anything else, but I cannot live without you. That's, that is a heart that is after God. That is a heart that God desires to see from us. That, that no matter what happens, no matter what it costs me, no matter how uncomfortable or, 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 or embarrassing it may be, no, the, the only thing that I'm after is the presence, the person of God. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, listen to this, the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then... Man, if you've got a question, could you hang till the end? You're just worshiping. Oh, beautiful. Go for it, dude. Have fun. Come on. Sorry, I thought, thought you were trying to get my attention. Yeah, hey. Bless you, me. <laughs> restore. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit, and then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. How can we be used by God to bring sinners uh, to, to turn sinners into sons. We have to learn to walk in the joy of our salvation. We have to learn to walk in the joy of our salvation. We have to learn to walk in the joy of our salvation. Just last night I was talking with some friends of mine who are, are, are here, uh, Jan and, and Max, I think, and, um, and they, they asked me, like, what's the one thing that helps you re retain a fire for, for preaching the gospel to the lost? And I, and, and I didn't even have to think about it because I've known this for years. It's worship. And here's why. Because, uh, and, and I've said this, this a lot, and, and if you remember one thing I say today, I hope it's this. Evangelism is what happens when worship breaks out of the secret place. Let me say that again. 
Evangelism is what happens when worship breaks out of the secret place. If you can become a true worshiper, what will happen is in your secret place, you'll say, God, you are faithful, and you are good, and you are merciful. And then if you stay in that, if you can, can, can maintain that posture when you go to the grocery store, it'll be really easy to say to the cashier, God is good, and he's faithful, and he's merciful. Because I say the same things to people about God that I say to God about God. It's called worship. That's where we get the joy of our salvation is, is by getting lost in his heart, by getting, by getting wrapped up in his face and the beauty of who he is. And if we can stay in that place, what's going to happen is, is that the worship that comes out of us in secret will begin to pour out of us in public. And then when I run into a stranger and they say, hey, how you doing today? Uh, it, 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 the, the first thing that will come out of my mouth is, oh, my God, I'm incredible. He's so faithful to me. He's been so merciful to me. Every, he had every reason to forget about me, and still he pursued me to set me free from myself. And then we're in the conversation. It's already started. I don't have to go up and say, uh, hey, excuse me, um, if, you were, if you were to die today, <clears throat> would you go to heaven or hell? <laughs> because the joy of my salvation qualifies me to, to teach sinners his way, to convert sinners to him. Because the joy of my salvation, it, it overflows out of me everywhere that I go. It can't be contained. <laughs> And so I want to tell you, this is a key to effective soul winning. Joy. Joy. The, the fullness of Christian living can be, can be summed up in this. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So I just, I, listen, all, all I do everywhere is celebrate the finished work of the cross. That's, that's right, and I do it on planes, and I do it in grocery stores, and I do it at pulpits, and I do it in my prayer closet, and I do it everywhere that I go because he's that good because I only have eternity to praise him, and I feel like it's not enough. So I better get started, like, immediately, and I better not miss a moment. <laughs> do you want to know why heaven lasts in eternity? Because you're going to need every bit of it to get to know him. Because he's that big. Because he's that good. Because his love for you is that incredible. That overwhelming. In your darkest moment, you can either run away from God like Adam, or you can run to God like David. It makes a difference to you which one you choose. And it makes a difference to the world around you who you choose. Now Jesus will be remembered forever and ever as the son of David. The root of Jesse. Now the whole world was cursed through Adam. And the whole world was blessed through David. I need to tell you this, it matters to the world whether your mistakes drive you deeper into the arms of God or push you further from him. And so I, I suppose I came here this morning 
to give you my little bit of advice. Choose joy. Choose mercy. He is more merciful than you know. He is more patient than you can imagine. And I know you feel like your mistake or your weakness is big, but his mercy is bigger. Choose joy. Thanks for listening to another message from Fire Church Ministries. For more messages like this one or for other information, check out our website at firechurch.com.au. Thank you.